0: Let's pray. Father, we come to you seeing our need. We come to you, Lord, because you're the only one we can come to. And we ask, Lord, as you guide us through your word this morning, that you would fill our hearts with joy and rejoicing and hope, because that's who you are. We ask that you come now, Lord, and lead us. Amen. Our text today directly flows from a message from last week on 1 Peter three twelve uh, 12 to, uh, what was it? What was last week's message? 13 to 17. See, even I forget after the week what happened. And I spoke. The last week's message was our response to suffering. In the midst of suffering, we are to do what is right. We must set Christ apart in our hearts as Lord and we're to continually submit to God's will. Now in 1 Peter 3, 18-22, as we bow in awe before Christ's triumph over suffering, to claim his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, we're encouraged that temporary suffering is worthy of the Christ who is our Redeemer, worthy of the one who is victorious. The passage today is about Jesus. It's about how he moves from suffering to triumph, how he moved from death to victory to glory and power. And this gives followers of Christ, those who are suffering, hope of final triumph and victory. And in light of Christ, your suffering is not futile or senseless. Sometimes we can ask the question, why? Why me? What's going on? What's the point? doesn't make any sense. Well, Christ is not only worthy of our suffering and obedience, but he is our pathway through suffering as he emerged victorious and vindicated. Now, you may not know it, but these four verses are considered to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the New Testament. Martin Luther, when he came to these verses... He said, this is as strange a text and enigmatic a saying as there is anywhere in the New Testament so that I do not yet know exactly what St. Peter means. In particular, when we come to verses 19 and 20 in a minute, we're going to see what the challenge is. Now, fortunately for me, I can share some of my ideas with you this morning and next Sunday, Pastor Brent, if necessary, can correct me. However, I do not want us to miss the point. This is a beautiful climax of Peter's thought. It reaches the height of encouragement for us. People who are exiled and who are suffering in a fallen world. This morning, if you really grab hold of this text, if you really are committed to living out, in particular, the reality of verse 22, you will see that the power, the glory, and the presence of Christ will overshadow any trials of today. As we, as we seek to understand this text, we need to, to place this within um, Paul's, or Peter's flow of thought because one can proof text this and, and make it say what it doesn't mean to say. In verses 3 to 12 of chapter 1, Peter describes Salvation given an eternal living hope through Christ's resurrection. That's what God has done. In verses 13 to chapter 2, 10, Peter talks about who we are, what's our identity. You recall we were living stones, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's who you are because of what Christ has done in the previous verses. But we live in exile verses 2, or chapter 2, 11 to 3, 12. And Peter talks about relationships to government, to family, to friends, to unbelievers, how we're supposed to live as the priesthood of God. And finally, the last section is the role of Christ in suffering for righteousness. Because when you live rightly, you're going to have trouble and suffer. And as we begin looking at these verses in 18 to 22, I want you to notice something. There's a a beautiful symmetry that's going on. Two times, Peter takes us down and then up. He takes us down when Christ died and then up when he rose, and then as Christ descended and ascended to his rightful place. And it's for this reason that I entitled this message, The Author of Hope. Jesus is our hope. And here's why. Here's why he's our hope. He died for our sins. In verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. Physically. But was made alive in the spirit. You know we do not suffer alone. But we follow Christ. Who has led us in the path and footsteps of suffering. This idea, once for all, should bring us joy. Jesus chose to obey the Father's will. In Hebrews ten, nine, in part, it says, Here I am, I have come to do your will. And in verse 10, Jesus, as our Hebrews is talking about, by that will that I've chosen to follow, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Jesus carried in himself humanity's sin. And he died on the cross, destroying forever the power of sin, which is death, and separation from God. Once Jesus died, thereafter, there is no more sin to die for. It is finished. Do you recall when Christ was on the cross and as before he died, he said, it is finished. It is done. Sin is broken. Any sin, any disobedience to God that you fall into today is already forgiven. The curse of death, result of sin, is broken and all who receive Christ receive permanent forgiveness. Now we still sin. And when we do, we need to confess and repent, turn away from it. Not because we hope God will forgive us this time. Oh, I've done this thousands of times. How can God forgive me? I'm such a bad person. No, we, we repent and confess that sin because we know we're already forgiven. And in his forgiveness, we live for him. Part of suffering can be... Uh, Mental and emotional things that happened in the past that keep coming up over and over again. Things that you could have or should have or shouldn't have done. You're forgiven. That's why Christ went to the cross and said, it's finished. The reason that Christ's death is for our atonement, it's for everybody's sin, is because Christ did not die for his own sin. He is righteous. It says, the righteous for the unrighteous in the middle of verse 18. He is without sin. That's why he was virgin born. He had no sin nature. He is the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could do it. And he died for our, for my, for your sins. We are the unrighteous ones in this verse. And he is the righteous one. And he's the one who died once for all. It is finished. That's hope. And why did he suffer? He suffered, the verse says, to bring you to God. His death is the death that we, that I, deserve. And because of his death for us, God legally says to you that your debt no longer exists. The penalty has been paid. The sentence served. The guilt and shame is gone. And Paul says it in this way in Ephesians three twelve, in Him in Christ, and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We don't come to God fearful, or will He accept me? He already has in Christ. We can come before Him, bring Him everything, all of our dreams, hopes, fears, frustrations, with confidence, because He already loves us, and has demonstrated that. It's our responsibility to receive and live in his gift of forgiveness by giving our lives in faith and obedience to Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And Jesus said of this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ alone brings us to God. I missed a few slides here. So the question this morning is Have you come to God? If so, you should be praising the Lord. You are forgiven. You have an eternal life and hope with Him in heaven. Whatever happens today pales in comparison to what will be waiting for us when we come into His presence. But if you've not, then today is the day, because God awaits you. By faith, you must confess to Jesus your brokenness, your darkness, your need, for you cannot save yourself. You can never meet God's perfect standard. You always come short of it, because we're all sinners by nature. We disobey God, not even thinking about it. That's what we do. If you've truly recognized this in yourself and you see this in yourself, this is God's Spirit touching you and saying, when I look at you, this is what I see. I see your need for me. I see the sin in your life that's separating you from me. And Jesus has died to bring you to to God. Giving your life to Jesus means to confess and turn away from your sins and accept and receive Jesus in your life and in your heart. You come to Jesus by asking him. By asking him to save you and to fill you with new life. If this is your heart's desire, then why wait? Right now, today, you can start a relationship with God through Jesus, our Savior. Jesus suffered and he died to bring you to God. So, come. Come this morning. Let 2017 be the beginning of a new life with God. We also know from this verse, verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died a painful death, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And in this death, sin died as well. However, death could not hold Jesus. It's impossible to hold him because he did not die for his own sin. He rose victorious over death, being made alive in the Spirit. So Jesus right now is alive forever. And he's become our Savior on the cross and our hope and life in his resurrection. You see, we're not just forgiven when you come to Christ. You're not just forgiven. You're given it inherent eternal life. You've inherited eternal life, even as He lives. What great hope this gives us to understand that God accepts and loves you, that Christ has prepared a place for you in God's kingdom where, and this is important in the context of Peter's thought, there is no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain in His presence in heaven. That's done. You have a future that no one can steal or take away, even if you are suffering. Christ is our eternal hope because he died in our place and because he's resurrected. That's the second reason is our hope. He's resurrected in verse 19 to 21. And here's where we come to verses 19 and 20. I'm within the challenge to figure out what the Apostle Peter meant when he wrote these words. In verse 19 says, Through whom also or in which in the ESV, or in the NIV of 2011 translation, after being made alive, he went and preached to the spirits in prison to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Of these verses, and maybe you've never come across this, you never thought about this as being uh, a challenge, and I, I don't want to make things difficult for you, but... It's a very interesting set of verses and what it means. And there's people on various sides of this question. And it comes down to identifying two issues in verse 19. Who are the spirits in prison? And what was proclaimed? In looking at this, we have to consider that when Peter wrote these words, he fully assumed that his audience understood what he meant. And that any any interpretation needs to respect the flow of Peter's thought as he talked about suffering and about Jesus. And so there are two main interpretations of these verses, in which he also went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. One interpretation says that Christ in his pre-incarnate state, that is, before he came into this world, he preached the gospel through Noah to Noah's generation. This would mean that we identify the spirits in prison as unsaved people who lived during the days of Noah. The proclamation, then, would be the need to repent and to obey God by listening to Noah. Of course, they refused and judgment came, despite God's patience. Only eight people were saved in the ark. The other interpretation is that Christ, in his resurrected state, Descended and proclaimed a message of triumph and victory over fallen angels who were imprisoned during the days of Noah. now, if you haven 't done so already, open your Bible with me as we walk through this, uh, so you can follow what i 'm doing and how i 'm talking about this, looking at verses nineteen in the first part of verse twenty in first Peter three at the very beginning of verse. 19, Peter writes through whom or in which he went or he also went. The through whom can mean two things. Either he went through the spirit or through the state of being resurrected. Both are perfectly valid when you look at the, uh, the Greek in which he If it meant by the Spirit, then Jesus had traveled in the Spirit and he proclaimed without reference to time. So he could be a pre incarnate state, filled with the Spirit, preaching to the descendants, to the people of Noah's time. And so we had to figure out what was said and who were the spirits in prison. If this means in which he went means in a resurrected state, it could still be in the Spirit. But if we identify the spirits in prison as people, this causes a problem for us because in Hebrews 9.27 it says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, we don't believe that Jesus goes and offers salvation to those who have already died. So it's a challenge. This is a challenge here. We also need to know that these verses connect with verse 22 in which we're told that Jesus is over Angels, authorities, and powers. And they're subject to him. So who are the spirits in prison? When I came to these verses, I had a certain viewpoint. And then as I studied it, it began to become less certain. And I began to explore what other scholars were saying. In the New Testament, the word spirit, when it's plural as spirits almost always refers to, to supernatural beings rather than people. Only in one case is refer to people, in Hebrews uh, 12, 23, where the spirits of the righteous are made perfect, clearly about people. The rest of the time, spirits, when it's used, even by Jesus, impure spirits, Paul, Peter, it's used of supernatural beings. When you add spirits in prison, This is only used of fallen angels. In 2 Peter 2.4, he writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the chains of darkness to be held for judgment. In Jude 6, And angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he, that is God, has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on that great day. And then Revelation, of course. In Revelation 20, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. So spirits, it seems, in the New Testament, plural, is used of fallen angels. There's something else going on here too that I didn't know until I started studying this. And that is, after the exile, and Israel came back to the land, through to the first few centuries of the Christian church, comprised of Jews who became followers of Jesus, there was a very popular genre of literature called Jewish apocalyptic literature. Literature talked about uh, prophecy, millennialism, and so on. And Peter, we know, was the apostle to the Jews, to the circumcised. So this letter could have been written to people who were Jewish in the background. And in this literature, Noah is a very important figure because he's a type who represents righteousness, that, that man of righteousness that was the one who was saved while the whole world was flooded and destroyed in judgment. So Peter's comments... Seem to fit this genre. And we can see that this audience would be familiar with this idea. So it looks like spirits in prison refer to the spiritual realm and not to people. But as I say, there are many fine scholar Christians who see it the opposite way. I'm not telling you what you should believe, that you should study it yourself. So, what was proclaimed? The word for proclamation in this verse is not evangeliz- evangelizomai. I'll say it again. evangelizomai, which is used in 1 Peter 4.6, which Pastor will talk about next week. It's a different word. It's the word kairuso, which simply means proclamation. And one might ask, why would Peter limit the proclamation to Noah's time? What about people who died... After Noah. And as for this proclamation, Paul gives us some hints. In Colossians 2.15, he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In addition, angels are part of the, the flow of Peter's thought. In chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says, Regarding the gospel, Angels long to look into these mysteries. In this verse 22, with angels and authorities and powers in submission to Christ. And later on in chapter 5, where Peter warns us and says, Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So for me, I lean toward Peter saying that after Jesus was resurrected and made alive in the Spirit, the resurrected Christ descended and proclaimed to the imprisoned fallen angels his victory and triumph. We have here the descent motif again. He died, he rose, he descended, and then verse 22, he ascended. For me, this fits better with Peter's desire to minister and to encourage those suffering for Jesus. After all, I ask myself, why did Peter even mention these verses? Why talk about uh, prison Spirits in prison and no one in baptism. I mean, the text could read like this. If you take those verses out, the text could read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Makes perfect sense. So why put this parenthetical comment in? I think because, for me, it reinforces the idea of victory of Proclamation that in verses 19 to 21, they illustrate Christ's descent to proclaim triumph as demonstrated by saving Noah. Noah suffered for his righteousness and obedience. It took 50, 60, 70 years to build an ark. No one built a boat. What was a boat? There was no rain. Imagine if you're in your backyard building a big boat. What do your neighbors say? Uh, hello? Hello? And then you say, oh, God's judgment is coming. Uh Nice. He was mocked. He suffered because of this. And he was vindicated in in the flood. When the flood happened, people knew Noah was right. It was too late, but they knew he was right. Christ suffered and died on the cross, mocked in his resurrection and in his final triumph. Everything, demons, angels, people, know Jesus was true. How often have you shared the gospel with somebody and they go, yeah. Or they mock Christianity or they mock Christ. Because they don't understand. They don't know. One day they will. Either through faith or through judgment. But they will know that Jesus is vindicated. And I'm indebted to the commentary by Daryl Charles, who makes a comment on this. And he writes, The point of Christ preaching to the spirits, then, the notion of which reaches a climax in verse 22 is to show that Jesus has triumphed over and exposed the very powers of evil themselves, forces that were hostile to Christ and to Christ's disciples. And so we know the proclamation of his victory, we know that he claimed his own through the flood, through Noah. Christ's victory over disobedience and evil corruption is Typified by Noah as the ancient world was judged and condemned. Only a few were saved as a result of God's patience. God waited. How many decades did He wait as Noah built that ark for people to come and have faith? He waited for them to ask questions, to hear what Noah had to say, and perhaps to believe Noah. Nobody did. Just as God's patience in the days of Peter. Was being exercised as it is today. Why is there a 2017? Why hasn't Jesus come back and rolled up? Everything's finished, judgment comes. Why? He's still patient. He's still waiting for the gospel to go forward. He's giving people a chance in the whole world to come to faith in him. He's not quick to judge, he's patient. And so, in this, Peter introduces the idea of baptism. where he says, in it only a few people in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, and in verse 20 now, were saved through water. Saved through water. And in this water, Peter identifies with baptism. The judgment upon the ancient world came with a flood. But it also represented salvation for those in the ark. So the concept of baptism is introduced by Peter as a symbol of salvation and cleansing of those who are immersed as a demonstration of their faith and as a testimony of judgment upon those who continue to reject and refuse Jesus. In verse 21, in this water, symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Water cleanses the body, but Christ has a resurrection cleanses our spirit and our hearts. When Peter says that the pledge of a good conscience toward God, you know, a pledge is a promise. It's a commitment. It is done by those in this context of baptism who choose to promise, to identify publicly that they belong to Jesus through baptism. And in so, acknowledging the consequences of discipleship including the willingness to suffer for Jesus' name. Daryl Charles again wrote, the link between baptism and suffering is that baptism is the sign of voluntary self-commitment to the Christian way. You know, whichever viewpoint you hold on verses 19 and 20, pre-incarnate Christ or resurrected Christ, we need to situate ourselves within Peter's message, his message of triumph, of hope, that Christ is victorious over suffering. Christ's victory over sin is symbolized in baptism. And as we move into verse 20, we can see that Christ is exalted, vindicated and honored because he obeyed the Father and suffered to the point of death for our redemption and now rules over all. So Christ is our hope because he died for our sins and because he rose from the grave. He is our eternal and permanent hope as we suffer for righteousness, just like Noah. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he brings us to God. And since now he rules supreme, our future is assured with him even as we suffer in the way he suffered. So the resurrected Jesus becomes our hope because he rules supreme. And so now in verse 22, Peter brings us up well beyond the resurrection, to the ascent, who has gone into heaven, who is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the crescendo moment when Christ takes his rightful place at the Father's right hand and all creation is beneath him. Everything is beneath him. All the suffering and the sacrifice, all the ravages of the enemy, all the pain and the curse of death, It's all swept away. It's gone. His triumph reverberates throughout the spiritual realm and everyone bows before him. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Spirits in prison. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus is at God's right hand. This was spoken of a long time ago in Psalm 110 through the mouth of David when he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the answer Jesus gave at his trial when the Sanhedrin court said, come on now, let's just stop this. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus, what did he say? You will see the Son of Man in the right hand of God. Quoting Psalm 110. They knew exactly what he meant. He was saying that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. Mark tells us as well that Jesus was received into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And Paul echoes the same truth, that Christ is now seated at the right hand in heavenly places. And from this position, he rules at God's right hand. And he rules over what? Over angels, authorities, and powers. His eternal victory and triumph is accomplished. He is the Lord. And all the spiritual realm is under his authority. In Hebrews, we know that Hebrews tells us the sun is a radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification of sins, after he died and rose, he sat down. When do you sit down? When you finished your work. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he becomes as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let all God's angels worship him. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, Christ's position this should this must give you great hope for as Christ rules we are reminded of something in Romans eight thirty eight. for I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord you know this is, this is reality. Nothing has the power or authority to pull you away from Christ. You are secure in God's love expressed to you in Christ. You belong to him. If you've given your life to him, you belong to him. And in his triumph of hope. Because his triumph, his vindication, his place in heaven is our hope. And we stand under his protection. We belong to him, and so we're called to walk the same road of suffering as part of God's complete will. We know Christ reigns right now, and when our days come to a conclusion, we too shall be vindicated by Christ, who led us to persevere through times of suffering, trial, and distress. If you've gone through something, was a challenge in your life, and you look back when it's finished, it's a different perspective than when you're going through it. On that day, when we look back, we will see that all the suffering was truly worth it. Because in Christ, we are triumphant, victorious, and we are welcomed into his presence as faithful servants. This is why this section of verses is the climax of our hope. God doesn't say to us, look, just bi- just grin and bear it. Walk through the suffering, just grind it out. No, he says, before you I place hope. Because Christ has already done it. He's walked that path. And now I'm having you walk some of that path with him. So the triumph is even richer and sweeter when it comes. Because you know what you had to walk through to see it. Because we suffer for the victorious Christ. We suffer for him. As Peter said earlier last week, we don't suffer for doing bad. We suffer for doing good. So, how do we experience hope? It's coming to God in Christ. That's always the beginning. Because hope is in Christ. If Christ is not part of your life, God's hope is not part of your life. But it's not just in that... That moment where you say, yes, Lord, come into my life. It's more than that. It's coming to him every day. It's coming to God every day, at every moment that you see a need. Something's going to happen. I'm going to work today. I don't want to see this person that caused me problems. I go to God. Give me the strength, Lord, to know how to respond. I got a diagnosis for something. What am I going to do? I go to God. You come to God in Christ. But that's why he died, to bring us to him. We rejoice in Christ's victory of salvation. Remind yourself of verse 22. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the Father's right hand. Everything is beneath him. He's in charge. It may not look like it sometimes in our world. You may think the world's a mess. But when you get above the world and look at what God is doing, God knows how he's working out his perfect plans. And lastly, we should be led to worship Christ as Lord over all, including your present reality and suffering. As we walk with Christ in trials and challenges, even in suffering, because we live in a corrupt world, we still have the flesh that pulls us one way and our spirit pulls us another. We have a world that does not have any regard for God and wants to just run to whatever they think is right. And that's a difficult place to live in. But we walk in hope. Hope based on the reality of Christ ruling supreme right now. This is why Jesus is our hope and suffering. And before I finish, I'll just say this. Because you have hope, if hope is real in your life, others see it in you. I don't know what people do who suffer and don't have Christ. How are they walking through it? At least I have the Lord. I can trust him. I, can, I know there's a reason for this. But those who are suffering around me who don't, I can give them hope. You can give them hope. Because if Christ puts hope in your heart, that's not to be held, it's to be shared. Sharing that hope, that confidence that you have that no matter what happens, Christ is on the throne. No matter what happens, I know where I am with him. No matter what happens, even if I should die today, I know where I'm going. I have that confidence and that joy and that peace that makes everything make sense as I live my life for him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the author. You are the perfecter of our faith. Lord, you give us the hope of life, of your forgiveness, of your joy, of your triumph. And Lord, we come now to to worship you, to lift up your name, to exalt you for who you are, and to give you praise and thanks, Lord, that you've given us hope, you've given us life, you've given us a future, and you've given us your presence right now to walk with us, Lord. Lord, thank you. You exceed anything we'd ever hope for or imagine, Lord. For in you we have hope in our life. Amen. Take these words with you as you go out. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority to Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore.